Um, okay, well, good evening. Uh, welcome to Measuring Happiness. This event is part of a series of events um, that is organized by the Forum of European Philosophy, and tonight is also sponsored by the LSC. My name is Tali Sherat, and I'm a neuroscientist at University College London. And tonight we're going to tease apart some really big questions about happiness and well-being. Um, what does it mean to be happy? How do we measure it? What factors enhance it, reduce it? Um, and is it more meaningful to look at happiness uh, versus other economic measures such as GDP? And there's been a large shift in recent years in how we think about happiness, both in academia and in policy and, and just the general public. In 2010, the Prime Minister um, has launched the Happiness um, Index Initiative to calculate the well-being of the nation and use that for policy alongside GDP and other measures. And so tonight we brought together the people who really started the revolution, so to speak, um, and they're going to tell us about what their research says about what makes people happy and what that means. So we have uh, Ben Page, who's uh, chief executive of Ipsos Mori, um, Andrew Oswald, who's a professor of economics at Warwick University, Paul Dolan, who's a professor of behavioral science at the LSE, and Elaine Fox, who's a professor of psychology at Oxford University. So um, the event will uh, be structured. Everyone, every person will have about 10 minutes to talk. Um, and then we will have a bit of a discussion up here and some questions up here, and then we'll open it up to Q&A. And before I introduce the first speaker, I just wanted to say that if you're tweeting tonight, the um, suggested hashtag is LSE Happiness. <coughs> so the first speaker is Ben Page, chief executive of Ipsos Mori, um, a leading market research company in the UK. He has worked closely with senior policy market um, makers in the government. He was named one of the 100 most influential people in the public sector by The Guardian and won several awards, including British Market Research Association Award and 2005 Market Research <coughs> Society Award. Um, he is the go-to person for national surveys on happiness and well-being, and so it's a pleasure to have him here today so he can tell us his finding um, about happiness and what we know about the nation. Okay, well, I'm really just here as a warm-up act for the three eminent professors on my left. Um, uh, we, we spend a lot of time asking questions. There are loads of slides. I'm going I'm to stick to my ten minutes, which Paul Dolan is going to run over and strangle me if, uh, because Tally's too polite. Um, so I'll just quickly race you through this. If you, you want them, that, you just email ben.page at ipsos.com and you can have the slides. You can do whatever you like with them. Um, they serve little purpose except to remind me to say, what to say next. And I think the first thing I'll just say is we, we are here to uh, discuss measuring happiness. Obviously, I spend a lot of time trying to measure public opinion, and we could have a big philosophical debate about whether it's ever possible to fully understand people by asking questions. But all I'd just say very, very quickly is that you know, we can, when we have to, on days like general elections, accurately predict what people are going to do by asking a very small sample of them. Um, uh, that's the results of the uh, exit poll in 2010 being projected onto Big Ben, which um, at the time quite a few political commentators didn't believe, but were proved uh, to be almost exactly right just a few hours later. So, first of all, surveys can work. Um, and what's fascinating about this subject is, uh, as the introduction just said, you know, how it's taken off. Any suggestions as to who might have said this? Adam Smith, okay. It's a good one. Slightly more modern. Michael Farage. That's Mr. Ca 
It's actually your Prime Minister. Um, now, he's actually changed his tune slightly, and you know, he's now a bit more about austerity than beauty and um, everything else. But nevertheless, uh, you know, he has, in office, gone ahead, as has as did Sarkozy and as have many other governments in measuring uh, happiness and well-being. Um, there are lots of critics uh, you know, of this idea, um, perpetual euphoria, the duty to be happy. Lots of people say, well, this is all nonsense. Although the fact that this room is so full suggests that well-being and the measurement of well-being is of interest to quite a lot of people. Um, but there are plenty of critics of the idea that we should look at it and the idea that you, know, you can be happy all the time and all the rest of it. But it's a popular idea. When you ask Europeans um, that actually governments should spend less time thinking about individual consumption or GDP and spend more time thinking about other aspects of quality of life, in virtually every European country, people will go along with that proposition. Um, so, you know, there we are. Um, obviously, money matters. Uh, but, of course, what's interesting is that although there's a relationship between income, the further to the right you are, the richer your country, uh, the further up the chart, the happier you are, at least on the global measure of how you feel about your life. But of course, there are big differences um, for given levels of income. So the Danes are much more happy uh, than the people in Hong Kong, even though the income on this adjusted scale appears to be about the same. Uh, the Venezuelans are much happier than the Bulgarians. It's much better to be Venezuelan than Bulgarian, for example, even though the amount of money the average household might have will be very, very similar. So there are some things, there are lots of things going on. The Danes are fascinating to everybody who looks at this. We are this yellow squiggly line here. We sort of mustn't grumble. It's usually about a seven in Britain when you ask us whether we're happy or not. But the Danes get happier and happier. My Swedish colleagues say this is because the Danes are stupid. But anyway. Um, <laughs> but generally they, you know, they are on, on nearly all of these measures, certainly in terms of what they report for wealthy Western countries, some of the happiest. Now in Britain we spent a little bit of time looking at this, partly just to confirm that all of the literature is correct. And we asked people people a couple of years ago, what would make you happier? Um, uh, any guesses as to the number one thing that will make the Brits much happier? Money? More time with your family. The most popular answer. But earning twice as much uh, is also there. And of course, we know that actually that may or may not work. Um, being healthier, more time with your friends... Um, a bit of travelling, some leisure, a community spirit, a happy marriage, 17% amongst the population as a whole, 40% amongst those who are married. Um, uh, more contact with nature, better housing, we can go down the list, some new skills, moving abroad, just more time to be alone. Now, what's interesting about this <laughs> is that we know that people who um, uh, earn more money often are happier, but it, 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 you know, when you look at the answers by age, you get some quite interesting patterns. Uh, the first is that the older you get, the less money matters. So the young people in this room, you'll be much more likely to say that you want lots more money, and of course you will be part of Generation X or Y, and you, know, you can't afford to buy a house, and you've borrowed lots of money to study at university. But as you get older, it will get better and better, and you'll start to worry about other things. Um, Sorry, so these charts, these charts don't quite work on this computer, but here we go. So what happens is that the older, the older you get, the less you worry about money and the more you worry about your health. So that is makes fairly rational, actually. Stuff, more iPods, iPhones, etc., peaks in your teenage years and then recedes. And, of course, more time with your family also peaks at the time when you're most likely to have young children um, that you need to look after. So people are fairly, even though we might argue about whether money really would make people happier, they're fairly rational. Also, when we look at the same data by social class... The poorer you are, the more likely you are to mention doubled income. And the ABs, and there are some in this room, all of the professors, um, more access to nature is actually going to make them happy than more money. 
on average, and all of us tend to mention more time with their family, the people at the bottom of the pile much more like to mention better housing. They're probably right to do so. So people are not necessarily illogical in terms of how they answer these questions. And there are many people in this country who, for whom more money really would make them happier. Let's just skip through these. Um, what else works? Now, we've tested a few other hypotheses. This is a, a traditional saying. If you want to be happy for a few hours, get drunk. If you want to be happy for a few years, get a wife. If you want to be happy forever, get a garden. So we thought we would test <laughs> this, um, this, this hypothesis. And actually, you know, there is, there is wisdom in uh, these problems. Here is satisfaction by how often you do gardening. The Royal Horticultural Society uh, loves this data. You will be a bit happier if you do gardening at least once a week. Not massively, but a bit happier. So gardening, if you, can, if you fancy that, that might work. Um, a bit of sport will probably make you a bit happier. It also seems to have an effect. Um, so again, uh, go swimming, do some sport, probably a good idea, make you healthier anyway, even if you're not happier. Um, get married. Uh, um, as you can see, much happier if you're married than if you're divorced or separated, and a bit happier than if you're single. Um, getting a degree. The more degrees and qualifications you can buy off the web or spend time studying for, uh, generally the happier you will be. Um, so, you know, again, that seems, to, that seems to help. Going to church. This is American data, I'm afraid. I have to apologise. Not British data, but for the Americans anyway, the people going to church regularly do seem to be much happier than those who never attend. So, again, maybe they're just more optimistic. There's no, you can't necessarily prove causal relationships, but nevertheless, it's a nice pattern. Um, one thing that's very clear in most of the literature and indeed our own data is trying to avoid middle age and teenagers. Um, you will be most miserable uh, aged about 35 to 54, particularly in your 40s. And I find that quite consoling. I'm a man of 49 years of age and I know that things can only get better. I mean, it's good. But look at this. This is if any of you are thinking about having a family and they look like the many people in this room who may be considering this at some point. This is what is going to happen to you when you get married. Um, so you'll get married... Uh, you'll then have children, you'll be absolutely miserable when they're aged 12 to 16, they'll then leave, and after that things will get better. And there's four separate studies that show the same thing. So every single study in Western countries does seem to suggest that you're going to be really miserable in your 40s when you've got teenage kids. Mine's 18. Right, let's carry on past this. Other things. If any of you do win the lottery, um, you need to watch out for this equation. This is by some American academics looking at the problems of adaption, estimation, bias, and social comparison. All these mean that when you do finally strike it rich, when you start your venture, you know, venture capital-funded business and get your first billion, it will not necessarily make you as happy as you imagined it would. And I know Paul will be very good on this in due course. Um, and the general evidence is that things are never quite as good or as bad as we might imagine them to be. This is women before and after getting married. Things get better, they get married, and then, you know, then it goes back to normal again. Now, I will leave this to the academics to argue about whether they really are at the peak of happiness at the time, around the time they got married, or simply they knew that they should say or, or should be happy at the time they were get mar getting married. So we don't know, but we will, we will debate that. But it's certainly clear, and it's similar with people dying and divorce. Generally, after somebody's died, you're miserable, but then things do get a bit better. Don't necessarily go back to exactly where they were. But anyway. So overall, I would just say that the evidence is there that some things may make us happier. The first is try marriage. Uh, generally, and, you're, and if you're a bit of an optimist, it's probably something you'll do. Get richer than your friends, but stay friends with them. <laughs> this is very important. This will then help you deal with the problem of moving to a new area of lots of rich people who are, you know, who are, who are, who are going to be, you know, so you'll be able to lord over your friends. As you earn more money, 
And I speak from experience. I've started off as a lowly researcher and I'm now a chief executive of a moderately sized organization. Um, but my problem is that I've spent all the money, the extra money that I've earned. I should have just carried on at the income I had of five or ten years ago and I'd probably be much happier than I am now. Um, find religion if you can. If anybody can show me how to find it, come and see me later because it would definitely make me happier. Um, probably and very seriously, find some time to spend with your friends and family. Uh, nearly always uh, seems to make a difference. Get a degree and uh, try and and stay healthier, and always uh, uh, try and avoid middle age. Um, It's absolutely (laughs) terrible. Thank you very much. The end. Thank you so much. Um, So now we're going to go on to our second talk by Andrew Oswald, who's a professor of economics at Warwick University. Um, He held posts at Oxford, LSC, Princeton, Dartmouth, and Harvard. He has written numerous highly cited papers, and many see him as uh, one of the godfathers of modern literature and economics on happiness and well-being, starting with his seminal paper in 1994, which really kick-started um, the important body of work that changed the way academics, government, and officials, and everyone else thinks about well-being. So he will tell us about um, his recent research about um, economics and social factors of happiness, maybe a little bit about middle age as well. Thank you. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be back in, in LSE. And I'm going to talk about measuring human happiness, of course. Uh, everyone in this room has grown up in a world where we've been bombarded with GDP measures, national income measures, gross domestic product measures of many kinds. We see them on the TV and in newspapers all the time. In 1934, a very sensible person said this, the welfare of a nation can scarcely be inferred from a measure of national income. You can't look at national income, this person said, and think that that is capturing genuine social well-being. Was this a 1930s uh, hippie, tree hugger from the 1930s? This is how I intend to look in 10 or 20 years' time, by the way. (laughs) My only problem, I should ask Elaine and Tally about this, is persuading my wife to wear this dress. (laughs) These words were not from a, a, a tree hugger, He doesn't look like one, does he? This is uh, Professor Simon Kuznets in 1934, and one reason why we should pay attention to this man's words is that this is the person who, you might say, invented GDP, invented national income. In a sense, of course, one can't invent that, but he developed the methods that are now used, and if we had only listened to him from the outset, we might have taken a different path. In the last decade or two, governments around the world and societies have started to pay attention to a different style of thinking, going back to Kuznets' original sentences, even, you might say. So we're getting documents of this kind coming out from our government and from many Western nations now. A role in this was played by something called the Stiglitz Report, in which I had a small hand, uh, commissioned by Sarkozy. This is the kind of sentence that you will find if you download that 300-page document and work your way through it. Statistical offices should incorporate life evaluations and hedonic experiences. And if you stare closely, ladies and gentlemen, at the picture to the right, you might come to believe that French presidents do value hedonic experiences. (laughs) The Commission recommended broader measures of social progress, and that's really what at least lies in the background of this meeting today and has motivated a number of prime ministers and others. 
Now, how on earth do we make research on, on uh, research progress on such a thing? The very earliest kinds of happiness questions were of this sort from something called the General Social Survey. How do you feel at the moment? Very happy, pretty happy, and so on. In this country, as some people here will know, the Office of National Statistics, the ONS, is collecting data now every year from really quite large samples where people like us are asked, how satisfied are you with your life? How happy did you feel yesterday? How anxious? And uh, do you think you have a worthwhile life? You can ask more clinical questions, questions of a kind developed principally by psychiatrists, Questions like that, have you lost uh, sleep through worry? A whole range of things that I can't talk about today, but you don't have to ask very simple unitary, you might call them, questions. You can create composites. If you know nothing about the patterns in a country like ours, this is how people answer. Seven is, I'm completely satisfied with my life. About 16% of Brits say that, I'm completely satisfied. One is the bottom, that's completely dissatisfied, and only a few percent will say that. Let me give you an example of an issue because it's sensible to think about what are the strengths and weaknesses and the difficulties of measuring something as subtle as human happiness. Let's take the U-shape in age. It was alluded to by Ben. There's a huge amount of evidence for this all over the world. It's very likely if you're a young person that you're going to slide down some version of this U-shape through your life and then you will, as he implied, enjoy life more and more in your 40s and 50s and 60s at the moment, in Western society, happiness, in a raw sense, probably peaks in the early 70s. The early 70s. Young people don't realise that. Of course, it depends on other things like staying in health. Now, that U-shape has been found. Say we didn't believe it when we were sceptical of well-being data. It's been found in all four of those, those measures. So if you take the ONS data, you look for the U-shape, you'll find exactly that quadratic equation, if you like quadratics, and I do, You'll find that in each of those measures. Now, it can be cross-checked in all sorts of ways. If you look at the probability of depression, clinical depression in this country, this is a huge data set, but this is not the night to go into the details, that also peaks, holding other things constant, in midlife. If you look at those who are taking antidepressants in Europe, uh, this is work with my colleague Blanche Flower, with 20 European nations, the probability, holding other things constant, uh, peaks in midlife across Europe. This is not well known, this pattern. And if you think that we should have the same characteristics or could check for the same characteristics in non-human primates, and you might believe that, uh, a bunch of us a year or so ago published in one of the science journals finding that you also get the U-shape in great apes, in chimpanzees and orangutans. So you might think of this just on the one specific issue of your life cycle of happiness, if you're a typical person as providing different kinds of evidence from different angles, confirming, you might think, or at least providing some sort of validation of well-being data. There are other ways. You can look inside the brain. We know there's a certain amount of asymmetry in EEG signals uh, inside your head, and that's correlated with happiness answers. Uh, you can look at uh, saliva. You can look at cortisol. There's some link between, consistent with the notion, of course, that cortisol is a stress hormone, some evidence of a statistical link between happiness reports and saliva cortisol readings. The long run aim is to measure gross national happiness. I thought I'd finish by telling you the latest results that we have on what makes countries happier. 
If you care about such things, these are fixed effects estimates. These are fixed effects estimates, and if you don't know what that means, that's fine too. Higher social spending as a proportion of GDP that's strongly correlated. This is part of Denmark's uh, secret, part of it. Unemployment insurance generosity, not retrenchment of the welfare state that's been going on so much in this country. If you look at the happiness data, it's very likely that's the wrong thing to do. Clean air has a very big effect, far bigger than most human beings are aware. And, of course, if you ask humans, is the air clean, they can't tell you. But if you look at the pattern of their happiness answers, we are, as animals, incredibly good at detecting the cleanliness of the air. Low unemployment and inflation, low crime and corruption, openness to trade, and finally, uh, very probably, the Danes have a genetic advantage. But I'm not going to tell you about the details today. Uh, Summing up, for researchers like me, um, it's a great life, an incredibly interesting life, and this is a fantastic field and will continue to be a very stimulating one. It's interesting to see so many people entering the field from so many angles, different science backgrounds. Uh, For countries, we have, I think, as a nation and as a bunch of Western societies, to bear in mind that... We don't care about economic growth. We've never cared about economic growth. What we care about is human happiness, and we presume that economic growth was a route to it, but it was never, repeat, never the objective in itself. And that's useful to bear in mind. If it makes us happier, fine, but that was never the point. The worry is we might get stuck in an equilibrium like this, and my candid view is that we probably are. Everyone's running faster and faster. They're competing consciously and subconsciously against their neighbours, And that's not making the group happier. We need to, bearing in mind climate change, all sorts of other things to think. Perhaps we're stuck in the wrong rat race equilibrium. In any case, these are the deep reasons that I think it makes sense to measure human happiness. Thank you. Thank you. So um, our next speaker is Paul Dolan. He's a professor of behavioral science at London School of Economics. Um, He is an author of the Mindspace Report published by the UK Cabinet Office, which seeks to apply lessons from psychological and behavioral sciences uh, to social policy. He is, um, one of his research areas is developing measures of happiness and subjective well-being that can be used in policy, and he often advises government sectors and has recently been asked to write questions that are now being used in a large survey in the UK to monitor national happiness. Thank you very much, Tally. Is that my water there or here? That has lipstick on it. That has lipstick on it, so that's mine, right? <laughs> here you go. Good. So um, here's my slides. Actually, that doesn't really make much sense. Um, I'm going to drill down into how we measure happiness um, in a bit more detail. I'm going to start with a little story of um, my wife's best friend. Um, I was out for dinner with her. That sounds a bit dodgy, doesn't it? Actually, my wife's best friend. I was out for dinner with her. Anyway, I was out for dinner with her recently, and um, she works for a prestigious media organisation, state-funded in the UK. Um, And uh, she... She, uh, she spent the whole evening complaining about her job. Her commute, her boss, her colleagues, pretty much every aspect of everything that she did on a daily basis. And then without any hint of irony, at the end of dinner, she said, of course I love working at the 
media land. <laughs> and that actually is quite explicable if we think about the different ways in which we tap into how people feel and how they experience life. When she was saying that she liked working at the BBC, she was constructing a narrative, an evaluation, a story about what life ought to be like working at the BBC. It's a prestigious media company. She'd always wanted to work there, and now she had the job of her dreams. And our evaluations of life, of life satisfaction, of different aspects of our life, our work, leisure, marriages even, are constructions of overall evaluations, which many times bear no relation with the day-to-day experiences of those aspects of our lives. Because day-to-day, moment-to-moment, every bit about her job was not happy. And Danny Kahneman has you know, distinguished between evaluations and experiences, and he's absolutely right in the sense that the experiencing self, how we feel on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day basis, doesn't have much of a voice when it comes to measuring happiness of the, of the sorts of measures that Andrew, Andrew mentioned earlier, and also in terms of what we actually do with our lives. Um, she should really change jobs. If it doesn't show up, if the evaluations don't ever show up in experiences we're probably making a mistake. And it really matters. It really matters not just for the individual behaviours, but it matters also for how we interpret data. Andrew is absolutely right that in all evaluative data sets, we get a U-shape with age. But if we look a bit more closely at experience data sets, so we've been looking at the American Time Use Study, which is about 13,000 people are asked... um, essentially about a range of feelings to do with three activities during the day. When we do that, we find something quite different. This will please many of you under the age of 30 in the room because you can look forward to your experiences of happiness improving till about then. All the life satisfaction data show that you get less happy as you get older, but in experience data, you're going to get happier. So this matters. Also, quite interestingly, we've shown recently that um, if you look at tiredness in those activities by age, something really quite surprising happens. People get less tired as they get older. I know, say that again. You get less tired as you get older. (laughs) That's controlling for the activities that people engage in. So we know, of course, as you get older, you do less strenuous stuff. Um, But even controlling for that, and even controlling for hours of sleep, people report feeling less tired as they get older. So the, so the ways we measure happiness matter, and I would be more interested in, and I think it matters much more for policy purposes too, in understanding much more about how people feel on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day basis. Not least because, not least because it can help us account for the scarcest resource that each of us has, and that's our time. Sadly, or maybe not sadly, because you've enjoyed the last 40 minutes, you are now 40 minutes closer to death than you were when you came in this room. You can beg, borrow and steal money, but you ain't getting that time back. That time is gone. And having gone round Whitehall and elsewhere for the last two decades now, it's remarkable how few policymakers actually really talk about and think about time use. In Ben's early slides... um, one of his early slides, Ben has about 1,000 slides a second, but um, in, in one of the slides, um, I would say that as a compliment, of course, um, the, uh, one of the early slides was time spent with family and friends. Yeah. That's right up there as being something that people value. Um, 
the time use measures clearly account for how people use their time. I can quite confidently say that if you all spent 20 minutes more with people you enjoy being with every day, you would be happier. I'm not sure that the life satisfaction data would pick that up. It might. Um, but I cannot say the same thing, by the way, about £1,000 extra a year. You'd probably get used to that quite quickly. And herein is the adaptation point. Ben, I, I, the, the, it's nice to go, uh, well, at least third out of four, because you don't know what you're going to say until you hear other people speak. And uh, well, I never know what I'm going to say until I hear myself speak. But um, the uh, adaptation process is you don't get used to paying attention to things you enjoy paying attention to. You don't get used to the 20 minutes each day with your family and friends. They become like a fine wine. Well, yeah, some of them do anyway. Um, but the money, you quickly withdraw attention from. What was originally a very exciting pay rise is now readily interpreted as actually not very much money at all, and look at everyone else who's earning more than me. So what we need to do is to clearly pay attention in life to the things that make us happy for longer, which is kind of an obvious thing to say, and to withdraw attention from things in life that make us miserable for longer or that don't make us happy for very long. And, and only more direct assessments of experiences, measuring how people feel on a moment-to-moment basis, can do that. That's it. Simple. I'm done. Right. So our last speaker is um, Elaine Fox, director of the Oxford Center for Emotions and Effective Neuroscience at the University of Oxford. She's a psychologist and a neuroscientist who has researched widely on the science of emotions. Her research has been published in top scientific journals and often covered by the media. She is the author of the successful book, Rainy Brain, Sunny Brain. Um, She has many awards, including a recent ERC Advanced Investigator Award to support her research in the development of emotional vulnerability and resilience. And she will tell us about some of her research today. Great. Thanks very much, Charlie. And it's very, very nice to be here. Um, I thought I'd start (coughs) off with a little story as well, just to illustrate the kind of research that I do. A man had two daughters, and these two daughters were as different as chalk and cheese. If one wanted to go outside to play, the other would want to stay in. If one turned the television on, the other would turn it off. One was a born optimist, always looking on the bright side of life. The other was an eternal pessimist, always looking out for what might go wrong rather than what might go right. So interested in this, the father thought, well, he'd see what would happen over Christmas if he gave them very different types of presents. So for his pessimistic daughter, he filled her room with all the presents of her dreams, the latest electronic gadgets, iPads, iPhones, all sorts of things. And in his optimistic daughter's room, he filled her room with horse manure. So come Christmas morning, he was amazed as he passed his pessimist daughter's room to find her in tears. What on earth's the matter, he asked her. And she said, oh, well, she said, I've, got, I've got all these great presents, but now I'm going to have to read all the manuals. I'm going to have to figure out how they work. The batteries are likely to run out. You know, my friends might come around and get jealous because I've got so many of these presents. So in despair, he went um, to his optimistic daughter's room and again, to his amazement, found that she was jumping for joy in this horse manure. <laughs> what are you so happy about, he asked her. And she looked at him and said, I just know there's a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> So 
we all know that we do differ. People differ tremendously from each other in their optimistic outlook or their pessimistic outlook. Now, optimism and happiness are not the same thing, but we know they are pretty highly correlated. So the kind of work that I've been doing, really, is trying to get at this um, sense of individual differences. We know that people really do differ from each other in very profound ways in terms of how we react to events that happen to us. The same events happen, and people react in very different ways. Whether those are very bad events or whether they're very good events, people really do differ from each other. So the kind of research I do, we take a lot of subjective measures, so like we've heard about before, we can measure on questionnaires or in structured interviews to ask people how happy they are. But what we've also been looking at are measures of what we call cognitive biases. So this is really looking at measures of how the brain naturally tunes in, if you like, to either negative information or positive information. Now, a lot of my earlier work was um, looking at these biases in people prone to anxiety disorders in particular. And one thing that we found, and it's been found all over the world now, is that when you use very sensitive reaction time measures, so we flash up images very quickly on a computer screen and people have to respond to these images, what we find is that people who are prone to anxiety and and pessimism and, and depression are much quicker to notice the negative stuff rather than the positive stuff. There's a genuine bias in the kind of information that they process, whereas we've more recently found that more optimistic people show the opposite type of bias. Now, the interesting thing about these kind of biases is that they're completely outside people's awareness. People aren't really aware that their brain is naturally tuning into certain kinds of information over and above other kinds of information. And the argument is that these biases are really, if you like, almost training the brain to look at the world in a very negative way or in a very positive way. So the idea really is that, you know, is it, is it, well, one question, I suppose, is, is it interesting to measure these biases? Because generally they do correlate with subjective measures of things like optimism and happiness and, and pessimism, <coughs> but sometimes they don't. Sometimes you find that somebody might have a pretty negative bias, but it's not necessarily reflected in, in what they believe about themselves. We also... Um, can measure neural activity. So we've been doing some work with um, EEG measures, as as you mentioned earlier. We know that um, cerebral asymmetry can differ between people who are much more optimistic and much more pessimistic. And again, this goes right through um, apes and monkeys as well. We find that generally if people have more activity in the right hemisphere, they tend to be um, slightly more negative, slightly more pessimistic, have a bias towards the negative. If they show the opposite, more activity in the left hemisphere relative to the right, they tend to so they tend to be um, more optimistic and approach reward in, in a better way. So I suppose one of the questions I have is, well, is it kind of... In, I mean, one of the difficulties with these kind of measures is they're obviously much more difficult to acquire relative to, say, giving people a questionnaire. So in terms of national-level surveys, it's very difficult to get this individual-level differences in, in reactivity. But nevertheless, I think these kind of things are important. They do seem to tap into somebody's general sense of well-being. And just very quickly, uh, before I run out of time, um, how can we change that? And, and is there any evidence that these kind of measures do change as people become happier. Well, there is actually quite a lot of evidence now. I'll just briefly mention two types of interventions, if you like, which have been shown to shift these kind of indices of individual differences. One is a technique called cognitive bias modification, where we actively, by using fairly simple computerized tasks, we try to actively, if you like, neutralize a potentially toxic bias into what we know is more typical of healthy, optimistic people. And there is a lot of evidence in both clinical populations 
populations and in the general population, um, that that can have real benefits. It correlates with subjective well-being. Um, also, mindfulness meditation. You might have heard a lot about this. It's, I think, a little bit oversold at the moment. But nevertheless, a lot of mindfulness meditation has also been shown to directly affect these kind of neural indices of of subjective well-being. Um, and I think my own kind of take on this, we've, we just did a, a small study um, recently where we actually looked at just getting people to go outside for 10 minutes, just have a work, walk outside, ideally, for 10 minutes, switch off their mobile phone, try not <coughs> to think about all the problems of work and relationships and, and whatever else. So I think a lot of the things that mindfulness is doing is actually taking people away from their busy lives and into the moment. And there's growing evidence that that is actually something we, we probably um, would benefit if we did more of that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much um, for those interesting talks. So I'm going to start just by asking the panel a couple of questions, and then I'll open it up to everyone here. So my first question is, um, we've heard a lot about what makes people happy. And my question is, does happy being happy change anything else? So does happiness make us earn more? Does it make us more creative? Does it make our relationships better? And should we even care? Is happiness the end goal, or is there another end goal that we should be looking at? Where, where do you want to start? Whoever wants to. Uh, <laughs> I'll start. Go ahead. I'll start. And we should, be, we should actually get more time now, us two, because we spoke for less time before. So um, it's all about time use. So uh, there's two questions in there, I think, isn't there? One is, 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 is um, you know, happiness the, the ultimate end goal? Short answer to that is yes. Um, if you inquire into why somebody wants something, why do they want to lose weight, why do they want more money, why do they want a fast car to get married, um, in the end, the answer is to be happy, and there seems to be no further reason to inquire into the reason why someone wants to be happy. Um, in terms of what happiness causes, um, Andrew will obviously know this too, there's lots of good causal data now showing that happy people take less, less you know, time off work, they're um, more pro-social, um, they're pretty much good at most things. When I first came to happiness data, I thought, well, there would probably be circumstances under which it would be good to be miserable. Um, if for example, French. protesters... <laughs> well, that's certainly good for the English. Right, yeah. Um, you know, people out on the streets, you know, protesting against injustices are angry people. They can't be happy. Well, as you know, they're pretty optimistic people because they think they can change things. They're actually out on the streets in the first place. And the anger, and this comes to something that I would have said uh, earlier that I'm going to say now, is anger has a purpose, can have a purpose. Um, and purpose is, is a significant part of our experiences. I don't want you to think glibly, although there's no reason why it should be glib that we should be happy and smiling, um, but I don't want you to think that, that, that I think or others think that happiness is only about experiences of joy and pleasure and you know, contentment and excitement, although it is about that too. It's also about experiences of purpose and experiences of fulfilment, meaning, engagement, worthwhileness, the obverse, not experiences of things feeling pointless and um, indeed futile. Um, so, you know, when my, when my daughter reads the same story to me for the fifth time, uh, I would rather be in the pub. Um, it's not very pleasurable, but it does, it does feel purposeful, and it feels purposeful in the experience. Um, and so with a richer account of experiences that capture pleasure and purpose, I think we can, we can claim that it is the ultimate end point, I think. 
Of course, two and a half thousand years of ethical discourse haven't answered that question, and we're not going to answer it tonight, but I think we can claim that. Um, and, and when we add purpose into the mix, we can show that pleasure and purpose cause many of the good things that we might want to encourage in society. Andrew? Go on. Uh, yeah. Well, well, what happiness does or what well-being does as a causal force, of course, is extremely interesting. I agree with Paul that I, I want to think about human well-being as the stuff that we care about at the end. But if you wish to know the scientific answer, the answer to the scientific question, perhaps I should say, what does happiness do to other things? There are two kinds of evidence you might look at. You might look at randomized trials where people are randomly made happier. <coughs> you could do such a thing, and we have. Or you might look at longitudinal data and ask the question, if you, this person is happy now, relative to others, will the happy person have a different kind of outcome? There's been lots of work on that, of that kind. At Warwick, we've done lots and lots of happiness randomizations on standardized productivity tasks, and in the lab we can make people 12% more productive very, very, very reliably. You might say, how do you check that out of the lab? And the best way we've come upon, it's rather black-hearted way, is to get them to do the standardized productivity test first, then at the end we quiz them about tragedies in their families' lives. And we find out that they're much less happy, not surprisingly, and those are the, the people who are much less productive among all our rather clever undergraduates. So there's a lot of causal evidence on productivity. Work by Deneuve uh, has shown, I think, rather persuasively that People crash their cars less in longitudinal data if they're happier. That's U.S. data. And that if you're happier as a youngish person, you will earn considerably more compared to your sibling. This is so-called within-sibling, within-family analysis, who is less happy. Again, that's pretty close to causal. It's not got logical status of a randomized trial, but it's not easy to get that. And we do know this, there's a long history going back to psychologists that happier people undoubtedly live longer, much, much longer. But again, exactly how much that's causal, <coughs> we don't entirely understand. Thank you. So um, one question maybe to Elaine. Um, are there any neuroscientific or biological measures that can show us if someone is happy, and should we use those measures? In, in which cases will those measures be more meaningful to us than just asking someone if they're happy or not? Sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really good question, and I think one of the difficulties at the moment is my, my gut feeling is that probably some of these measures will give us a little bit more because we're looking at a very individual level. But I think one of the problems is that um, we need to really look at reliability of these measures. And almost by definition, some of the measures that we take of the brain, because they're <coughs> very, very flexible, they're very good to look at short-term changes in people's mood states and people's general kind of happiness. But often over the longer term, it's not that clear how consistent they might be. Um, so there's some evidence with the cerebral asymmetry that um, it may be quite a reliable level. You know, it does seem to be consistent. Um, so it's a kind of a different question. I mean, you're probably more familiar with the fMRI data. Um, the, the difficulty with this is, of course, it, it turns out to be extremely expensive to do these kind of studies because you're looking at, you know, you really have to take somebody into the lab. It's going to be at least one or two hours per person to really test them. So it's really quite difficult to do that. So a lot of the really basic um, research, I don't think, has really been done. So it, it's, it's difficult. We don't really have the kind of clear evidence to do that. Um, but I think the evidence that, you know, when you do look, um, when these brain indicators and cognitive biases in particular do shift, um, it does seem to correlate with a lot of the things we 
we know are consistent with, with happiness and, and better well-being. Mm-hmm. The reason, I mean, one of, one of the reasons that I'm asking is, um, I think Ben mentioned that people say that they're happier when they get married, for example, and you said, well, we don't know, are they really happy, or are they just saying they're happy because they think they're happy, and we have rationalization as well, right? If I put a lot of effort into something, then I, I want to think that there's a good reason to it, so marriage and kids come to yeah. mind. Um, and so then I say to myself, I'm happier. So then the question is, would there be a dissociation between the subjective measure of saying I'm happy and what actually yeah. is going in our brain? And maybe that's exactly. one instance where um, that measure will be exactly. useful. Or in, in the monkeys, right? Exactly, we can't yeah. really ask monkeys if they're happy, but maybe we can measure their brain. <laughs> do we, we want to do that? And I don't those, know. And those cerebral measures um, have actually been done with monkeys, and they do, mm-hmm. you find very so, similar, similar kind of things. I think one of the interesting things is when we think about happiness and, and say, optimism generally, we often do think in terms of, say, positive thinking and, and how we feel. But I think what, what we've discovered, what other people have discovered, is that um, optimism in particular, there's, there's numbers of different components to, to, to that which aren't necessarily to do with positive thinking. So, for example, we know that persistence is a really important element of optimism. And we do a very simple experiment um, in, in, in the lab with just a, say, student population. We simply divide people into optimists and pessimists based on a simple questionnaire. And then we give them an anagram task, so just a jumble of six letters where they have to come up with a word as quickly as they can. So we start them off with one or two pretty easy anagrams, and then we give them six letters where it's actually impossible. There's no solution at all. And the simple outcome measure is would it take the optimists longer to finish the task or to give up than the pessimists. And time and time again, what you find is they, they do take about twice as long before they give up. So I think a lot of the benefits we know, say, in business and success that comes from optimism and happiness is probably much more to do with these kind of traits, like persistence <coughs> and a sense of control, which actually correlates but isn't the same thing as positive thinking. So I think there's a number of different elements we need to really kind of look at. Mm-hmm. Okay. And last question, just before I hand it off, this one to Ben. I don't yeah. know if you have any insight. This is a question that I get a lot. Why do we think that British people are grumpy when, in fact... No evidence. Well, sure, not, yeah, they, they, we're they quite say happy. that they're happy. So the French, where, where the, the, French the Italians, the Spanish are all much more miserable than we are. I think it's, it's like, you know, it's the weather, etc., etc. And there's also things about social norms, about, about how much you're meant to express things. And our splendid class system, particularly in, under the Victorian period, which we're still just about getting over, about what, how you express yourself in public... <clears throat> Okay, great. Um, so, shall we take a question from here? Hello. Um, my question will be around the fact that um, the idea of GDP was based on the fact that more goods and services would bring greater happiness to more people. Perhaps the panel could basically tell me how they realised this idea was actually wrong. And in terms of perhaps neurologically, what sort of damages does this continue to do in society if we continue to follow this idea? Okay, I think we're just going to take two more questions and then answer all three together. But um, over there. Um, Hi, good evening. Um, I come from a developing country, and I've had, um, while before leaving the countries, I used to think that maybe poor countries are suffering and they're really unhappy, and they... I come from Pakistan where every other moment there's a bomb blast. You don't know who'll die. I have witnessed shooting myself, and it was unpleasant. But looking at the developing countries, I now have some degree of... um, Awareness that happiness is, um, I mean, what you're defining it to be, um, 
is happiness actually a measure of where, while the initial two presenters were using uh, well-being and wealth together, is wealth and richness correlated to bring happiness? And finally, poorer countries are more happy. Is it also because of the lack of opportunities or choices that they already have? Whereas the so-called developed world has more frustration because ample competition or competing forces? Thank you. Okay, and one more before we had um, over there. My name is Blake, and I'm a master's uh, candidate here at the LSE. And I think that we can all agree that happiness is one of the most complex and controversial subjects uh, out there. I think if you put a million people in a room, you'll probably get a million different answers on how to become happy. And I think that something that's different from happiness is the self-reported subjective well-being uh, that you use to collect your data, whether it's from the General Social Survey or which uses very, the, the very crude mechanism that we saw, how happy are you, or even as complicated as it gets with the ladder of life or, or whatever you use. I think that um, it's, it can't be disputed that happiness is different from self-reported subjective well-being. But what makes it onto BuzzFeed and to Facebook and the unnamed media sites um, isn't that there's a correlation between being married or divorced or having kids or attending religious services and self-reported subjective well-being, but rather what makes it onto these popular sites is here's a recipe for happiness. Do this. And the question if, is about self-reported... Right. Yeah, what, what is the question? <laughs> okay. Is there, is there a difference between self-reported subjective well-being and happiness? Okay. Okay. Um, so um, let's start maybe with the second question, which I think was what is the relationship between wealth, income, and well-being? And um, I think there was, as I understood it, an insightful question, which is what is the relationship between anticipation and expectation and happiness? So if we have lower expectation, does that mean that we're going to be happier, and how is that related to it, it, The answer, of course, is that it's complicated. I mean, richer countries do tend to be happier, um, there aren't loads and loads of poor countries who are absolutely delighted, but there, is, there are clearly huge ranges and there are plenty of places that express quite high levels of, of life satisfaction that if we transferred this audience there, they would not be happy at all, uh, but the residents there are okay. So there's a huge issue about expectation. There's an issue... It's, a lot of this is a social construct. Um, and, you know, and, and, we, and, we, and social norms are hugely important in terms of how people think about themselves. So I would... But it, it certainly, you know, you do, you know, you, you probably you need to construct measures for each country and each culture. Making the comparisons between them is extremely problematic. A lot of what we do for major consumer companies all over the world, when you're trying to measure whether people might buy this phone or something else, you just, to the same question, you'll get massively different answers in different cultures, which leads to different behaviours, and you have to understand how people are likely to be interpreting questions in different cultures and countries. Andrew, I think, do you have any data about income and um, happiness? Yeah, yes. Uh, I, I know you have a lot of data. <laughs> so how much money, Andrew? How much do we need? Uh, well, I, I would say that uh, happiness increases indefinitely with income okay. for a person. Plenty of people object to that. Yeah. Uh, but we, actually, we don't have good data sets on exceptionally rich people. It's very likely that the rise drops off, of course, in a curved way. 
I think if I'm allowed to link to the gentleman who asked sensibly about the focus on GDP, what's the harm of focusing on GDP? That seems like an important thing to grapple with. And one thing to say is the so-called Easterlin paradox, named after Richard Easterlin. The balance of the evidence is that Easterlin is correct when he says that as a country gets richer, it it won't get happier. His most recent paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences for China for 20 years. That's a particularly sharp example because China's had the fastest growth rate, roughly speaking, in human history, about 10% a year for 20 years, and the Chinese in his days are slightly less happy than they used to be 20 years earlier. That's a particularly striking example. So uh, probably we're chasing the wrong thing, and that's the harm of a GDP measure. And second, in a world with global warming and the rest, we probably need to be (coughs) cognizant of the real forces that shape our lives, the environmental factors that come in so strongly. And I worry that the more you think about money, the less you realise that the quality of the environment may be much more important to you as a human. Um, So you mentioned uh, uh, that countries that get richer don't necessarily get happier. What about getting poorer? So if we look at Greece, for example. Uh, We do know there's a strong business cycle effect. That's the way I would think of it as an economist anyway. Sure, when you have a recession, uh, you remember I I spoke about unemployment and inflation. There's absolutely no question, I'd say. Many research teams have shown this, in other words, that in a recession people get a bit less happy. That's largely because unemployment rises and unemployment is bad for the people losing their jobs, and it's very frightening for the rest of us. That's a different question than asking. If we look at the blips up and down, that's a different issue from over 30 years or 50 years, as we get richer in a secular way, what will happen. A short-term burst of uh, lack of money, that's painful. And a short-term East- burst of, of money? Is that, do we have any uh, yes, in a boom, of course, we get happier. We but that's not rel- I would say that's not relevant to the Easterlin paradox, which is about the long right. uh, term. So it might be about how different things are versus where we are at the moment. Uh, yes, and it's, about the, it's just about the, the really long scenario where everyone's getting richer together. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Elaine, can I ask you what you think from a kind of a psychological point of view about expectation and anticipation and, and is that good for us absolutely not? I was going to say and I think Ben mentioned it in his, his talk as well I think social comparison is, is absolutely crucial here and, and I think uh, you know th- we are extremely sensitive I think to how well other people are doing in comparison to ourselves so even if you get say a big promotion and a big increase in your salary um, you might have thought before that that you would be much much happier when that happened and that would be what you would expect but actually when you get there what happens fairly quickly is you then start looking at people who are already promoted to that that level, and then you start looking at the people who are slightly above you. So I think this social comparison is, is kind of always there, and it, it can actually lead to a lot of misery. You know, I think we, we can be in this constant cycle of, of striving to get more and more, you know, either promotions or wealth or materials, um, but actually there's always going to be somebody kind of with more than us. So it, 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 it is one of these kind of real cycles. So I think Ben's advice was really good, that if you do kind of earn more money or get a promotion, keep the same friends and don't move to a totally different area of town where there's a lot more wealthy people. You know, so I think that kind of social comparison is really, is really kind of relevant. And, and I suppose this whole kind of sense of fairness, we know from experiments that um, 
people do have a, a real kind of sense of fairness. So if you get people coming into psychology experiments and you give them, um, let's imagine there's two people, and the experimenter gives one person £100 and says, you can divide this up between you. You know, if they divide it 50-50, get £50, keep it for themselves, <coughs> people are very happy with that. If, say, one person, the, the person keeps 60 for themselves and gives 40 to the other person, the person who gets the 40 is really unhappy. Now, you think of it, that's actually quite irrational because they've had nothing when they came in. They've now got £40. But because they know the person hasn't given them half, they actually are very, very unhappy. So I think that whole sense of fairness is very kind of, you know, almost hardwired, if you like, um, into us. So I think we're always very aware of, you know, fairness and social comparisons, and that can really affect our general well-being and happiness, I think. One, th- one interesting thing, this is actually a study that uh, we've been doing together with Paul, and we've asked people um, what things make them happy. So imagine going to dinner with your friends, how happy will you be? And we found, and there's a lot, a hundred different things, and, and I think number one or number two, to uh, event that made people happy was planning a vacation, while actually going, being on the beach was much lower. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, my, my worldview was, is always that actually anticipation makes you happy because it's, it's exciting and, you know, anything can happen in your mind. Um, but there might be also these negative yeah. effects as well. So, so can I just agree with yeah. that, of course, because we're working on the same study. But um, <laughs> anticipations are experiences in the, in the moment that you have them. So clearly that's part of an experiential account. Um, my students have heard me say, and they held up banners earlier, thank you very much for that, saying context matters, because I said it every, every week for the last term, or every hour, every minute for the last term, obviously. Um, measures matter is going to be what I'm going to be saying every minute for the next term. Because um, Andrew's right that life satisfaction increases in income, but daily reports of mood don't. US data show that once you get to about $75,000, you don't get any happier if you get richer. 750,000, 7.5 million, 75 million. No happier than if you had $75,000 a year. So so the the measures really matter. And, you know, of course expectations matter, but, you know, if you punch me in the face right now, Tally, um... It would hurt, probably, uh, a little bit. Obviously, you couldn't punch me that hard. But um, it would, I, I, I wouldn't be referencing that against someone else's reported pain. It might be referenced against how much pain I've experienced in the past or how much I anticipate experiencing in the future. But the life satisfaction, life ladder questions are contaminated, if you think of it in that way, by social comparisons. I really can't think about my life overall without making some kind of comparison with other groups. But the pain I feel, the joy I feel, the ecstasy I feel, the misery I feel, is what I feel. And coming to the guy's question about the self-reports, I can't think of a better way than finding out how much a punch in the face hurts someone than by asking them. It, 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 there, there may be better ways of doing that, um, and you know, ideally, we, it would be great to measure people's happiness without having to ask them. So at the moment, I can't, I can't think of a better way to do it. Well, one way maybe is to ask people how much they would pay not uh, to get punched. Uh, well, that, that's a very silly um, question. You know, that's a very silly <laughs> question, and you know you're being silly now. Um, uh, uh, Am I? <laughs> <laughs> let's not get into let's not get into the ludicrousness <laughs> I mean, of willingness to pay responsibility. How much would you pay for me not to punch you right now? <clears throat> uh, not very much, actually. Right, I don't exactly. Think, I don't think it hurt very much. But how much uh, would you pay for Ben not to punch you? There are more. There are. So, it's indicative uh, of something. <laughs> yeah, probably not very much either. But the, 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 uh, the problem, the problem with all of those measures, as 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 as, as anyone who's used these measures will know, is that they require an anticipation. They imagination of the future consequences of an event. And we all know, 
on this panel and in this room how poor we are at being able to predict the impact of things that happen to us, even in a few moments, let alone in a few days, years or weeks or months. One of the great things about happiness data is that they allow us to show how much things impact upon people when we're not asking them how much they think they will impact upon them. Because we get lots of happiness reports from lots of people, we find out all sorts of other stuff about them, and then we allow our estimations to tell us how much those things impact on them, because we're really poor judges of how much things will hurt us um, in the next moment, let alone in the next you know, day. I, I did, at one point, the number 10 policy... Oh, shut up, unit, what do you want to fight now, do you? The, the, the number 10 policy unit <laughs> were actually suggesting, this is under Blair, that we should tax positional goods very highly because the process of striving and anticipating your new sports car or expensive watch <coughs> or expensive holiday would actually be, you know, it's worth making people wait longer for it and strive for it because they'll actually appreciate it more when they finally get it. Or, you know, the, or actually the process of lusting after it is almost as good as having it. Well, that's certainly true. <laughs> right. Um, over there. Thank you. Um, my name, my uh, question is actually about expectations, because um, yeah, I don't know the Can you repeat? Sorry? Sorry? Expectations. expectations. Yeah, because I don't know what the operational uh, definition is, but to me, optimism is having high expectations, perhaps higher than <coughs> reality. So when you strive for something and you have high expectations and you achieve the thing that you want, you will inevitably be disappointed if you're an optimist. So how does this relate to being or becoming happy? That okay. is my question. Let Tally answer that question. <laughs> I will in a second. Um... Hi. Um, I'm sorry if this kind of early... Like kind of already covers some of the stuff you've been talking about, but I want to ask what part does choices play in happiness? Say, for instance, if you have lots of choices, are you more happy than if you have less choices? Like whether it's choosing what to order in a pub or whether it's, I don't know, choosing a career or in a bunch of cars you're going to buy. If you have less choices, say, for instance, three rather than 50, are you happier or are you happier if you have 50? And the last one in the middle over there. Yes, hello. So uh, I thought it was very interesting to hear that, uh, wait, let me get the name, Professor Dolan, I think, uh, that he not only spoke about uh, hedonic feelings, but also like life perspective, uh, purposefulness, and so forth. So otherwise, it would be just uh, maximizing hedonic experiences, which would lead to something like Brave New World and drug abuse and whatever. So, but... Putting this to, uh, comparing this to uh, this, uh, what came up before, that uh, there's lots of put positional benefits. So I feel happier if I'm better off compared to other people. So if we can only be happy with these types of things, uh, I would like to hear from the panel what uh, their own little utopia would be. How would we need to change society? to be all happier, or do we all, uh, do only a few can be happy because of this positional effect? Okay. Um, so there were three questions. One about disappointment, uh, second one, the paradox of choice, and the third one was what should we do? Um, 
to summarize it. So, okay, starting with the disappointment, um, let me just try and answer part of it myself. Um, so, to my knowledge, the, the idea that if you have high expectations, you're more likely to be disappointed, and that would um, um, make you uh, less happy and have negative affect is actually not supported uh, so much by the data. So what we find is that people with high expectations tend to be happier um, whether the expectations are met or not met. Um, and it's thought that the main reason for that is how you interpret the outcomes. So even if something negative happens to you, if you interpret that as something that just happened because of chance and you're actually going to be able to make a better outcome in the future, so you remain with high expectations, you're going to be happy. And so the idea to my uh, view of lowering expectations in order to make you happy um, does not have any support in the data, although it's a kind of the common view. Um, yes, I, w- I would say that. The people that tend to be optimistic tend to um, be optimistic even when the expectations are not met, and then they just generate more and more expectations and just have more of a positive um, way of interpreting the events and, and so there isn't strong support for that. But if I'm, it's not necessarily the most, um, I'm sure people have different views on this. So should we, we, agree, we agree with you because, <laughs> because you know you know more than we do about that. So we uh, and I think well, just following on from that, I think I think it's right. I mean, I think that there isn't actually much evidence for that. And but I think the other kind of interesting thing about optimism is that um, the. the I think the literature shows that the, the kind of optimism that does really bring benefits is not a kind of a blind optimism. So not the idea that everything is going to be wonderful, everything is going to kind of work out fine. The research shows that the, the kind of optimism that actually is, is very good is almost like a realistic kind of optimism where, where people are overly optimistic and they believe that they will be able to cope with whatever happens, but they don't necessarily believe that, believe that everything is going to be wonderful. So they, they have a very strong sense that actually some things won't work out, but deep down I'll be able to deal with that. So I think it's a, you know, I think often people when they think of optimism, they think it's almost like that blind optimism. So I think the research shows it's a more realistic optimism is the kind of optimism that is of real benefit. Mm-hmm. Yes, again, I think a lot of the evidence shows that people are more optimistic, do tend to be um, much more self-confident. And, and as I was saying, I think a lot of the other components, like having um, a sense of persistence, but also a really important aspect is a sense of um, control and empowerment. We know that optimists have a much stronger sense that they have some kind of control over what happens to them. And even if that's illusory, and sometimes it is, it still actually is, is quite empowering. Mm-hmm. And ju- just to kind of say that, that, as you said, optimism, it doesn't mean that we don't see the obstacles. So optimistic people see the obstacles. The difference is that they tend to think that they can overcome them. Um, and there's some evidence that they engage in thinking about how to overcome them, and then it becomes self-fulfilling to some extent. So in, in this perfect state, then, I mean, we'd probably want it to be more equal, like Denmark, than very unequal, uh, in terms of the distribution of income, that would appear to be a good thing. But would we also have a government that went round trying to make people optimistic? So, I mean, the good thing is that uh, most people are optimistic. Right, well, that's good. So 80% of the population um, are optimistic, and they're happy as well. Yeah. So people are kind of surprised about that. People tend to be um, optimistic. Um, so I don't necessarily 
believe that you need to make people more optimistic than they are. Um, but that being said, there is one issue, which is, and actually that's, I, I heard Ben and Paul talk a few years ago at the RSA, and it was about uh, private optimism versus public despair. Um, and so one issue that a lot of people are not optimistic about is the world, yeah. right? The, the, the government, the, world. the country, the world. And I think one of the reasons that people are pessimistic about the world is that they don't see that they have control over it. Yeah. So we think we have control over our own life, therefore we can steer the, the wheel in the right direction, yeah. and so we're optimistic, but we don't have control over the world, and so we are. So I think maybe the government wants to somehow increase the sense of control in the citizens to make them more optimistic about the, their country and therefore induce positive action um, in, in this utopia world. Right. Um, that might answer the third one. So what do you think about the paradox of choice? Definitely exists. Um, we just see consumers completely, you know, they don't want infinite choice. It's easier to have <coughs> more constrained choice. Um, well, it kind of depends, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, um, that even though individuals may, some individuals may uh, be psychologically uh, harmed by having more choice, in aggregate, in markets, it's possible that overall welfare is increased. So we see it, I mean, Julian Legrand, if he were here, I think would argue this about public services, choice in public services, that although it only takes a few people to exercise good choice, as it were, even if some other people are kind of, you know, paralysed by it or feel worse off by it, for the quality of services to improve. I mean, that's an open question, but at I least think, that's, I mean, the data uh, at least that's is, possible. At least what people say about public um, services, they put more choice massively down the list compared to basic quality and access. Yeah, but, um, if, but my point is that if choice leads to quality and access, then they're not tradable. Well, yeah, then, they're not, sure. then they're not tradable um, um, against each other. It is up for debate, <laughs> but it's not it's not as yeah. clear cut as your answer yeah. would otherwise uh, indicate. Um, the other thing is to is to also think about choice over choice, right? So there are um, many examples, um, including going out for dinner. You'll find this tonight. I don't actually care what you order me to eat as long as I get protein. That's pretty much you know all I care about. Um, and so why would I spend time agonising over menus? Um, let, let someone else do it for me. And they can agonise over it on my behalf. Wait till you see um, what I've got for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, that's, I've set myself right, up for yeah. a fall there. But, um, but there are some things, and also I think it also we, we, we do tend to kind of sometimes agonise over choices where the future is very uncertain about those choices and the outcomes of them and spend a disproportionate amount of time agonising over things that actually we're very unclear about what's going to happen, and we'll probably be all right whatever happens yeah. anyway. I see it with students who come well, to we'll me. we'll rationalise it. They're talking about course choices and crying about what courses they should do, and it matters really much. It doesn't actually really matter that much. You'll be fine anyway. Um, and, you won't know, and you won't know what you didn't choose anyway. Um, uh, Chris C at Chicago has done some great work on this, you know, joint and separate evaluations. The things that really matter when you make a decision, in contrasting two options... Uh, very rarely are the things that matter when you experience one of those. Um, and so, um, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a very mixed and complicated answer. Um, but I think we should be thinking about where we should be exercising um, a choice and, and where we might be wanting to kind of spend less attention or energy constraining ourselves in those choices. Mm -hmm. I, I think one thing to think about is the difference between <coughs> do we have a choice and how many options are there? Because I think um, if you have a choice, that gives you a sense of control, yeah. and that's something that does make people happy. And often we find that if you choose something, you like it better. Yeah. If I, ch I choose right. a holiday myself, I'm going to yeah. enjoy it more. So that's one question. Do we have a choice? The other question is how many options do we have? Yeah. And so, we've, I mean, yeah. people have shown many, many times that if you have more than a number of options, then that just induces too much indecision, yeah. and, and that causes negative affect. So yeah. it's another thing to think about. Um, and... 
the last question was... I would like to say something about the last question, but just before that, you may like to know, despite what Paul said about protein, there's a very strong correlation, I imagine he knows this, between the number of fruit and vegetable portions per day and your happiness and mental health. I know your paper very well. Very strong, a very strong correlation, and there's some randomised trial evidence, not done by me, uh, supportive of that, so... Uh, I don't particularly want to warn you away from protein, but it's absolutely vital, absolutely vital to eat many, many portions of fruit and vegetables. The Danes, the Danes, of course, we say eat five a day, but in Denmark the campaign is all about six. In our data, happiness and mental health peaks at around seven and a half ah. portions a day. Uh, on the big question... Uh, Somebody very sensibly said, how the heck do we make society happier? Well, we might as well fool around with the little questions like that. I mean, of course, uh, there are many levers on which we could pull, and I could talk for some hours about this, but I think, kind of going back to my slides, uh, we need to reduce background fear. Uh, That's why we have a welfare state. We need really good health insurance, randomised trial evidence done in the U.S., Recently in the New England Journal of Medicine makes it clear why the U.S. needs a good public health system, because it reduces background fear and makes people happier. The welfare state, uh, unemployment generosity, benefit generosity, all these things. And second, we'll we'll gradually realise why the green movement is not reading all these papers yet, I don't know, but we will gradually realise that the quality of the green environment is absolutely vital the cleanliness of the air and many factors of that sort, those ideas will, will come more and more to prominence. So from, can, we just, can I just ask, from, from talking to people in the government, what are the actions that is you know, already out there um, as, as a result of the le- latest surveys on happiness? Is there anything specific that they are now doing that they weren't going to do before? Some policy changes? Well... Um, There are scientific changes. I've just got the data from a large randomised controlled trial done, you could say, on how to raise the happiness of Britain. I can't tell you about the details. So the government paid for that giant RCT, that giant trial. But in terms of uh, altering policy yet, it's just way too early, I think. I I take my hat off to Cameron and Blair and co beforehand in the sense that they did start to pay attention to more human, more real measures of what the heck we're trying to do in society and moved away from GEP. But this is very, very early and will go on for hundreds of years after we're dead. This is a long, long agenda here. Okay, I think we have time for one last question. And we'll take it from down here. Hello there. I wanted to ask about um, the French paradox and the problem of cross-country comparisons in self-reported happiness. It shows up. We've talked a lot about inputs to happiness, and um, anecdotally, um, the French have one of the the biggest, highest highest social welfare spending. They have very low inflation. They're very in touch with nature. They spend a lot of time on food and with their friends, and yet, and uh, they also have one of the highest productivities per hour, um, which was one of the outputs we we talked about. And yet, they self-report consistently lower happiness. 
Now, might this be because of cultural differences in what counts as happiness? If, if happiness is an amorphous concept, including um, hedonic pleasure, being pleased with things, and a kind of more Aristotelian conception of, 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 of fulfilling the good life or, or, or whatever, might they just have a richer conception of happiness than, than, than we Brits, for example? And might that account for why they self-report lower happiness? Or is it just <coughs> infidelity? <laughs> I'm not an expert. I, I'm, I work for a French... We sold our business to a French company, so I'm not going to comment. Cross-country. I'm certainly going to comment. Of course, you, you, ra- you raise a really good question, and undoubtedly cultural things are going yeah. to influence people's answers. And, and we've thought about that for decades, uh, doing research and all this. One thing we can do... You remember I said I was presenting so-called fixed-effects estimate. That's just a complicated way of saying it. We take out the... Uh, constant innate differences uh, across countries when we do a lot of this work. The, the leading French researcher on that area is uh, Claudia Senec at the Sorbonne, and she thinks that the French are culturally attracted to uh, reporting themselves as miserable yeah. and indeed in being miserable. Yeah. That's her view. Yeah. Um, however, you, you, you didn't remind the audience that France has tremendous unemployment and it has many other things that, according to the list of bad mm. stuff, would show up. Um, I'm also of the opinion, because I'm working on genetics at the moment, that they have a genetic disadvantage. There we go. It's a lovely point on which to finish. The French, I must tweet this one. The French is a beautiful note on which to finish. Um. Just, just to kind of uh, say about that, I mean, it, it may be that your measures, Elaine, would be helpful here because it may be that they're just reporting less happiness, but if you use these um, measures that are not, do not involve awareness, like biases. Exactly, and that's, that's one of the things where these biases can be very, very useful because sometimes, even though there still are some kind of cultural differences, but I think you can bypass a lot of the subjective um, reporting. Which mm-hmm. sort of do we know anything useful. about differences in biases across... Not, not very much, actually. No, no, not very much. All right, well, thank you for a fascinating discussion. I just want to say that Monday, 6.30, we have a (coughs) discussion about what the mind, what the brain can tell us about the mind, right, Um, which uh, should be very interesting as well. So thank you all, and thank you for the speech.